Let's pray together as we come to the scriptures. Father, we are thankful that we have so much to talk about, so much to remember, so much to know, so much to believe, so much to share, so much that you've told us about so we wouldn't be in the dark. We are informed. So please help us be informed well, to listen well, but also to serve with what we are given in the knowledge that we are imparted today. Thank you for your word. Thank you that it speaks still after thousands of years. Every time we open it, we are blessed. So bless us again this day, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, this morning we come to the third message in this series that I've called The Coming of the Messiah as Announced to. We began in Genesis 3 a couple of weeks ago and noted what was announced to the snake, to the serpent, which I'm sure Adam and Eve overheard. And then two weeks ago we noted what was announced to King Ahaz of Judah, of all people, by the prophet Isaiah, about a virgin conceiving and bringing forth a son. And now this morning, this next person who stands in line to receive the news of the coming of the Messiah is, of course, Mary herself. Now, as we do that, think about Mary, one of the dangers we ought to be aware of is the danger of being all too familiar with the story. I've lost count of how many times I've preached on a passage like this and you too might have difficulty remembering how many times you've heard it preached to you. But that's to be expected, isn't it? Every time Christmas comes around, there's an expectation that we'll be turning to these very familiar passages and hearing from them, and so we should. But the danger, as I said, is that we think we know the story. And so, in some sense, we close those ears to anything new we might learn or be challenged by. So my hope for you and I this morning is that not only will I be able to show you something that is here that you may not have noted before, but also that this will inspire you to sharpen those observation skills as you keep reading and listening to God's word, even if you think that you know the story well. Now this morning we get our feet wet in the world of Luke 1 and as we do so we remember that the story so far according to Luke has all centred around Zechariah the priest and his wife Elizabeth and a visit from an angel called Gabriel. Now the last time an angel appeared and spoke to anyone in the Old Testament was way, way back in... Daniel chapter 9. And yes, you'd be right in thinking that the angel in Daniel chapter 9 is the same angel who appears in Luke chapter 1, with this appearance being an appearance that was by far the most important and the most telling, as he announced to Mary the news of the coming of the Messiah. Well, there are three things to note as we go through the text, among many, many more. 
First, let's see the unsettling greeting that was conveyed to her. The unsettling greeting conveyed to her. Now, as we heard this morning, verse 28 says, And he, the angel, came to her and said, Greetings, O favoured one, the Lord is with you. Have you ever wondered why Mary was so disturbed by the greeting? Luke says she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Unlike the annunciation to Zechariah about John the Baptist's coming birth, it's not the angel's sudden appearance that's unsettling to Mary. It's not Gabriel per se that is troubling to her. According to the text, it's the greeting itself. That's what's bothering her. She's troubled not by the angel, but by the greeting. And why, after all, his opening line isn't all that disturbing, is it? It sounds like good news to me, especially when there's especially nothing unnerving to be disturbed about in it. The Lord is with you. Except there is. The Greek word translated greetings and the word for favour in Gabriel's opening message actually share the same root. They both come from the word for grace. And that's important here. It might be an over-translation, but it helps to make the point that what Gabriel says to Mary is something like this. Grace to you, object and recipient of grace. Grace to you, object and recipient of grace. The Lord is with you. Do you see that? He sees it again in verse 30. Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favour or grace with God. This is a passage about grace. And as Mary's about to find out, the grace of God that is being lavished upon her has consequences. It has implications. I think she has sense, some sense of that right away as she listens to Gabriel's message. What could possibly be coming next after a greeting like that? What's he going to ask me to do? If I found favour in God's sight, what's my responsibility? Tim Keller somewhere tells the story of being approached by one day after by a lady who confronted him a little agitated demanding why she had never heard this message about how free and generous and unconditional God's grace really is. Obviously at the door she confronted him. After a few probing questions, Keller got to the bottom of what was really unsettling her. She said, if I have, to, if I have some contribution to make to my own salvation, well then there's a limit to what God can ask of me. I've done my part, you see, and now he has to do his. But if salvation is entirely free and all of grace, all at his expense, if it's all done by grace, then that's really scary because it means if I accept his gift, this grace, then there's no limit to what he can ask of me. And that's exactly right. The grace of God is free. We don't earn the grace of God. We don't deserve the grace of God. We don't merit the grace of God. 
But the grace that is free has implications. When it comes, nothing can or will be the same again. It has consequences. And that realisation dawns on Mary, not unlike the woman who approached Tim Keller that day. She becomes increasingly troubled, even more so than Zechariah was troubled in the earlier verses when Gabriel told him about the coming birth of John. It indicates a depth of distress and anxiety that wells up in Mary's heart, which is why Gabriel has to say in verse 30, don't be afraid. Now you remember Mary is engaged to a good man, to Joseph. They would soon be married, life is on track, things are going according to plan, all is well in Mary's world and then the grace of God disturbs everything. Everything is turned on its head. Mary's plans are out the window. Nothing will stay the same. Her miraculous pregnancy exposes her to potential scandal in the community. Certainly it came close to ruin her relationship with Joseph. I think the truth is we've rather domesticated Christmas. 2,000 years of tradition and storytelling have blunted the deeply disturbing reality of what happened that first Christmas. Nothing could have blunted the force of it for poor Mary, however. She felt the full impact of its disruptive power, the grace of God coming in and saying, guess what? When Gabriel tells her she has found grace and favour in the sight of God, she freaks out because she knows that in its wake there's now nothing that God cannot ask her. The grace of God, you see, is disruptive. It's disturbing, it's unsettling, it's not tame, it's not domestic, it's wild. And the grace of God will change the course of your life. Grace is always, always a change agent. So the news of this grace unsettles her and in a way it prepares her. Secondly, uh, consider the amazing details that were revealed to her. The amazing details that were revealed to her. Here we think about verses 31 and 32 and the angel Gabriel said, and behold, you'll conceive in your womb and bear a son and you'll call his name Jesus. Now, if the greeting was unsettling, imagine the details, the content of the actual message that Mary receives, that she, unmarried virgin teenager, apparently, was about to get pregnant and have a son. I can't imagine how that went down for her. But don't miss the connection in what Gabriel says between the grace he tells her she's come to enjoy and the child he announces she will shortly bring forth. You have found grace with God and you'll conceive in your womb. Grace has come to her and it comes to her not as some magic pixie dust sprinkled over her but in the form of a baby, in the form of the Messiah. So when Gabriel tells Mary she has found grace, he isn't telling us something about Mary, how special she is. That's not the point at all. He's telling us about the baby and how special he is. Now the Roman Catholic Church here, I need to point out, has completely missed this altogether. 
and have turned Gabriel's greeting into a prayer to the Virgin. You may be aware of it. Hail Mary, full of grace, blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus, Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now at the hour of our death. That's what the Roman Catholic Church does with this angelic greeting, but it's a misunderstanding of the biblical teaching. Gabriel isn't telling us that Mary herself is full of grace, like she's some sort of reservoir of grace that she can give to others. No, when Gabriel tells her, that she has found grace and favour with God, the only thing he is telling us about Mary is that she is in the same position as you and I are in, as sinners who need grace. The point isn't to direct us to Mary, but the one who is the source and the fountainhead of the grace that she needed and I need and you need. Gabriel's message is that this grace has come to her from outside of her, not only into her womb to be born of her, but into her heart that she might be born of him. He's the source of grace. And we see why that is so in Gabriel's description of who Jesus will be. Two things. First of all, we're told he'll be human. He'll be one of us. One of the really striking things about this Annunciation to Mary is how radically different it is from the Annunciation to Zechariah. You notice that two accounts are there consecutively in Luke's Gospel. Zechariah is a priest. He's serving in the temple and all its grandeur there amidst the sacred sights and sounds and smells, all the splendour, all the paraphernalia and drama of the Old Testament of worship. And there the angel appears to him and announces the birth of the last and the greatest prophet of the Old Testament age. But when it comes to the announcement of the Messiah himself, Gabriel goes about 50 miles north to the tiny little rural backwater named Nazareth to an utterly unimportant, altogether ordinary peasant girl. He came to her, verse 28, literally He entered, that is, he did not step amidst the glories of the Jerusalem temple, nor did he go to the majesty of the emperor's palace, but he entered into the rustic simplicity of Mary's nondescript home. And there, without fanfare or without drama, the coming of the Messiah is made known. One commentator says, the tone and setting of Jesus' birth matches the tone and the setting of Jesus' ministry. The great God of heaven sends the gift of salvation to humans in a serene, unadorned package of simplicity. It would be entirely understandable, wouldn't it, to harbour high expectations for John the Baptist's life and career in the light of the circumstances surrounding Gabriel's appearance in the temple. But surely we'd all likely have overlooked the news that Mary was going to have a baby except perhaps to gossip about a teenage pregnancy out of wedlock. There's really nothing to mark it as special. Messiah born in lowly circumstances, living in humility, obeying and bleeding and dying for us as one of us in humility. And that's the note being sounded here. 
And yet, he also says he's divine, not like one of us. He is human like one of us, but divine, not like one of us. He will be called the Son of the Most High in verse 35. So Mary's boy is at the same time the God of all glory himself come to dwell among us. By this, the eternal Son of God was united to human nature so that he would be, as our catechism says, both God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. Here's the measure now of his condescension and love. Without any of the trappings of earthly glory, God himself came all the way down into our lowly estate. And that means we can go to him. We might not dare approach him were he suddenly to come as the mighty conquering earthly king. But that he came in the lowest of circumstances means the least of us may make direct approach to him knowing that he knows our frame and remembers that we are but dust. You can go to him. So can I. We can all go to him. We can run to him. He hears, he knows, he understands and there is in Jesus sympathy, a high priest able to sympathise with us in our weakness. And we learn not just about who he is but what he does. His rule is highlighted, isn't it? The promise made in 2 Samuel 7 that David's son would reign on the throne forever is now coming true. The father will give him the throne of his father David. He's going to be the king of the Jews Actually, more than that, king of all nations. The coming of the Messiah demands our surrender. He does not come to enter into a negotiation. He comes as the king. He demands a bent knee for him. Thirdly, let's consider from verses 33 to 36, the the welcome assurance that was shared with her. Understandably, as verse 34 makes clear, Mary's heart right now is bursting with questions that she needs answers for. And who could blame her for that? How will this be? Since I am a virgin, I just don't get it. And Gabriel's answer in verse 35 and 38 helps her. It's wonderful in its clarity and reassurance. First of all, he explains the conception will be miraculous and supernatural. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Like the work of the Holy Spirit at the dawn of history, breathing life into Adam at creation, here now is a new creation. Here is a second Adam. The promised seed of the woman who came to crush the serpent's head will come by the ministry of the Spirit. And so the child will be called holy. That is to say, he won't be a sinner. He will be the consecrated, sinless, sin-bearer, uniquely qualified to be the one sacrifice without blemish or stain who can take away the sin of the world. And then Gabriel provides some evidence to bolster her faith. 
He points Mary to her cousin Elizabeth's experience. Elizabeth, Mary knew, being unable to conceive, and here she is now six months pregnant. Mary, as it turns out, will be the climactic example of a long line of miraculous pregnancies in the scriptures. Think of Sarah. Think of Rachel. And Manoah's wife, the mother of Samson. And Hannah, the mother of Samuel. And now Mary's cousin Elizabeth. If God could open the women of these, uh, the womb of these women, unable to conceive, he could so work in Mary still a virgin, so that she too could conceive and bear a son and call his name Jesus. And then Gabriel makes his most telling point in verse 36. Nothing will be impossible with God. That actually is the final answer to a question of how. That question that Mary's fear-filled heart is asking Nothing will be impossible with God. And in it we find the final defeat of doubt, the answer of God to every fear-filled heart. Don't we? Whenever we find ourselves asking, how will it be? How will I overcome this trial? How will I endure the next few days? Not thinking about Christmas. Eventually we've got to come back to these words again. Nothing is impossible with God. And so at last her perplexity evaporates. Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. In the acceptance of what she'd been told and still did not know the implications of, well, it's another sermon for another day. So what should you do? with the message which which we find in this text about this disruptive, unsettling news that God has broken into this world in the form of his Son who is holy, undefiled and separate from sinners who came to bear our sin, pay our penalty in his body at the cross. What do you do with that message? How should you respond Well, Mary points the way. See her model response. I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. In other words, have it your way. I trust you. Now here's the question. Have you ever said this to the Messiah himself? Have it your way. I trust you. See, that's why he came. He came to rescue you. The God who can do all things, who made himself known in the scriptures, came to rescue you. Paul said, Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. There's no argument from him regarding how he came, that's all in God's hands. We might not understand the full implications, but his concern is to make sure you understand why he came. 
And on that, the scriptures do require something of you and I in relation to the fact of his coming, this burst of grace into the scene. And that is to take up Mary's response of simple trust and make it your own. Those who turn from sin to trust his son will be saved. You cannot save yourself. Only the one whom Mary bore in her womb is the saviour and king that God has sent. Mary trusted him. The challenge to us is to trust him also. Will you do that? Let's pray together. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that in this burst of grace that came into the world, we find salvation in the one that Mary gave birth to. We're delivered from every false thought that somehow, some way, I or any one of us can earn my ticket to heaven. Even Mary couldn't. She needed the son that she bore in order for her salvation and we need him also. And we're glad that you confirm these things to her. As we thought about at the start of the service, when the time came for him to be born, and he was born, she pondered all these things in her heart. Perhaps she weighed up everything that she'd heard, and now what she saw with her own eyes of the baby, the arrival of the Messiah himself, Give us that simple trust that Mary had, that simple reliance, believing your word and taking it as truth. Bless to us her example this day as we honour you and give you thanks for her faithful service as a servant of the Lord. May we too find grace and peace through responding to the Messiah as she did. We pray in his name. Amen.